Pacifica Radio, this is an encore edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. On August 19, 1953, the U.S. and British governments overthrew the popular government of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh and paved the way for the autocratic rule of Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. To mark the anniversary of the coup, we bring back a conversation between Shahram Aghamir and distinguished professor of Iranian and Middle Eastern history and politics at City University of New York, Irvand Abrahamian. In his latest book, The Coup, 1953, The CIA and the Roots of Modern U.S.-Iranian Relations, Professor Abrahamian reveals how the United States reaped a substantial share of Iran's oil wealth and became a dominant player in the Middle East and North Africa following the coup. Many also argue that the 1979 Iranian revolution, which brought to power Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini in a shift that reverberated throughout the Middle East and the world, was a direct blowback from the 1953 coup. Ervand Abrahamian spoke with Shahram Aghamir about the significance of 1953 coup d'etat in Iran and how the coup has shaped Iran's modern political landscape. When Iranians look at the past, it's like the period before and after. The generation that lived through this, 53 is like a guillotine. It really divides pre-53 to post-53. Until 53, there was some political pluralism. Politics was very much in open street politics, a lot of competition, quite free press. There was a great deal of movement of nationalism, socialism. And after 53, it's like a dark, basically, winter sets in. It's very much closed up. It's a dictatorial system. And basically, the whole course of the Iranian history changes that. And, and some people would argue the net result was the Islamic Revolution of 79 with the emergence of religious movements replacing nationalism and socialism that had been the prevalent ideologies before 53. Uh, before 53, the, the Shah, of course, did have a lot of influence in the military, but his influence in the political uh, life was uh, still pretty limited. And, of course, after 53, he, the monarchy became the, basically the hinge pin of the whole in, institutional a regime. So it, it was a very much different type of politics. And internationally, how significant was the 1953 coup in Iran? Well, it changed the whole orientation. I, I think under Mossadegh, he basically was very much in favor of non-alignment. Uh, he called it negative equilibrium, i.e. keeping a dis- equal distance from the major power blocks. And in those terms, the term third world wasn't invented, nor the term even non-alignment. But he was very much a forerunner of uh, that basically worldwide desire to be separate from both the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc. And, of course, the Shah uh, reveled in being pro-Western. He signed military treaties. He almost every major issue he supported the United States, including on uh, Vietnam. 
and by becoming pro-Western, it meant the opposition became much more intensely anti-American. And again, this paved the way to this 1979 revolution. The 1953 military coup is traced back to a dispute between Iran and the British company named Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. Can you talk about the origins of this dispute? And there is a backdrop to this dispute over Iran's oil, and that is the country's experience with colonial powers. The oil company basically was a state within a state within Iran. It basically disregarded the Iranian government. It was a private company. It had its concession from the beginning of the century. The concession had been slightly modified in 1933, but in fact, it was very much a 19th century type of concession that conceded to the foreign company all rights. It could do more or less whatever it wanted to. It was not accountable to Iran. And to run the industry, it needed a lot of local officials in the oil regions to be very much subservient to the oil company. Uh, so from in terms of sovereignty, Iran saw that its own sovereignty was lost to this British company. And, of course, there were added grievances that, that the amount of money that was given to Iran was a pitiful. Uh, conditions of work, uh, living were pretty bad in the oiled areas and so on. But these were added uh, grievances. The real grievance was the question of sovereignty. I think after World War II, when many of former colonial countries became independent, such as India, Pakistan, then in Africa and so on, in Iran, there was also the same mood that the country should become fully independent. So Iran had not been a fully colony, but it had been a semi-colony of the British. And not surprising enough, Iranian nationalism, Iranian desire for a sovereignty independence, uh, focused on this question of oil and the need to nationalize the oil company. So the oil crisis in Iran wasn't just about uh, money. It wasn't about dollars and cents of how much money to get from the oil industry. But it was a question of sovereignty, question of proving that Iran is fully independent. And to prove that the country is fully independent, the national movement really felt that uh, the oil industry should be nationalized, i.e. it should be taken away from a private British company and should be run by the Iranian state. So this is why the whole issue was very actually potent, very explosive. It wasn't just a question of money, but a question of national sovereignty. And that's why you call it a zero-sum struggle, dispute between Iran and the British government and the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which incidentally is somewhat ironic that it was called Anglo-Iranian oil company, which everything about it was British, except for the fact that the Iranian labor and Iranian resources were being exploited. Yeah, of course, the name later was changed from Anglo-Iranian to British Petroleum, BP, which is a more actually accurate <laughs> term for it. You brought up an important point, and this is uh, very well documented in the book, about how this was, again, an issue over who controls Iran's oil resources. But just to have an idea, how were the revenues from the sale of Iranian oil 
distributed. How did this arrangement look when compared to other petroleum exporting countries and their contracts in the so-called third world? Uh, well, it, it was much more unfavorable. Um, the sort of the agreement that had been signed uh, in 1933, it basically gave Iran about 20% of the profits. And that was a bit also dubious because the books were not open to Iranian government to see actually what was 20%. So what Iran was getting uh, was really very uh, a pittance. So the American policy was that if the oil company gave Iran uh, 50% of the profits, like uh, the Americans in Venezuela had agreed, and then uh, actually around 1950 also had similar agreements in the Gulf in, with the Saudis, what was known as the 50-50 agreement. The U.S. argued that if that, the Britain gave this, then this, this would solve the problem. Uh, this is why I'm saying it's not really an economic issue, because even if the British had offered 50-50, it wouldn't solve the problem, because... Iran really wanted to nationalize a question of uh, uh, sovereignty. It wasn't just a question of better revenues. And people still misunderstand this. It's like saying, well, the uh, 13 colonies in North America should have been satisfied paying the stamp tax, because after all, the stamp tax was a pittance of money compared to the money that mm -hmm. was then spent on the Revolutionary War for independence. That obviously is not an argument that would have washed when it is a question of, question of independence, sovereignty, and national independence. So even if the British were willing to give 50-50, for the national movement in Iran, that was not the issue. What they wanted was, in fact, uh, sovereign control over uh, Iran's resources. But the British were intransigent, even in terms of giving that 50-50 concession to, to the Iranian side. Iranian grievances against the British company also had to do with the conditions of the workers in the industry and the companies meddling in Iran, Iranian politics. Yeah. The British company's argument was the wages they paid was better than the wages paid in other industries in Iran, which is true enough. But then the question is, uh, what's a fair wage? Is it a, a, a going wage at that country, or is it a fair wage It has to be in proportion to profits? Since the profits were incredibly high for the company, the wages they paid may have been better than, let's say, a local farmer paid their tenant farmers or uh, laborers. But the just price would, should have been much higher to give the workers a, a living wage. And, of course, the oil company also was not at all sensitive to labor issues. It often took a very bad period to suddenly cut wages, cut uh, subsidies for housing. It was threatening to actually uh, lay off a lot of workers on the grounds of efficiency. And these issues really uh, triggered a lot of strikes. And if the management had been more sensitive to labor issues, these problems could have been alleviated, but still wouldn't have solved the real problem, which was a question of sovereignty, who controlled uh, the industry. And, and certain job classifications were completely uh, closed to Iranians. Uh, yes, I think there was a general uh, policy by m the management that especially technical 
jobs should be uh, uh, monopolized by British and Europeans. And they were very reluctant to bring Iranians into those positions. And the 1933 agreement, in fact, one of the clauses was that the British should have trained more Iranians for those managerial technical positions, but that promise was not actually fulfilled. So there was a lot of complaint. And you find actually sort of racist remarks uh, in their memos in the oil company that basically Iranians are incapable of efficiency of uh, organizing technical stuff, and uh, that was the rationale given why those positions should remain under British uh, monopoly. And, of course, this created a lot of resentment among uh, the Iranian labor force. And this is one reason, in fact, the Iranian labor force was very much for nationalization. Even Iranian middle managers in the company who were in many ways anglicized, educated in England, trained by the British, uh, they were very much in the forefront of nationalization. So speaking of those workers in the oil industry, they appear to have been fairly well organized and militant. As you mentioned, the stage major strikes, this happened in uh, 1929, 1946, and then again in April of 1951. You argue that historians in general, have overlooked the impact of this labor movement on Iran's quest for nationalization. These workers appear to be the unsung heroes of Iran's oil nationalization movement. Yes, I think there is a class bias that much of the writing on the oil crisis is done very much by, I would say, nationalist historians who, of course, focus on uh, the nationalist movement as the main actor for the nationalization, which is true, but they then overlook the role of the actual uh, oil workers. And there was this major strike in 1951 that really shook the country, and that was added impetus for nationalization. And, of course, it wasn't the first time it had occurred there. Every so often you have... Uh, outbursts of general strikes in the oil industry and why they don't occur often is mainly because of repression. If you have the government and the oil company working together to round up and expel or imprison any uh, organizers, then they were able to crush opposition. But whenever there's a slight opening of ability to organize, you get these incredibly well-organized, incredible general strikes, one of them being in uh, April 51. The Communist Party of Iran in 1920s and later on the Tudeh Party, which was Iran's pro-Moscow, if you like, Communist Party was very much involved in the strikes and organizing the labor. Your book, The Coup, not only offers a good analysis of the events and different players involved in those events that culminated in the U.S.-British engineer coup of 1953, but it also offers some very important facts. For instance, you note that in a rally during a 1946 labor strike, a woman speaker starts talking about taking back Iran's oil. You note that was probably the first call for nationalization in a public gathering. 
Uh, yes, it's sort of an unknown footnote. <laughs> Usually, I people, thought that was fascinating. Well, the first call for nationalization came in the match list with yeah. deputies, and then you can argue which deputy was the first one. But uh, I found this actually a public speaker in '46 saying that one could even maybe even find earlier period, even maybe in the twenties, someone if one had. Uh, uh, transcripts of some public speeches, uh, people already talking about uh, a need to control, uh, have sovereignty over the vital resources. So, it uh, it's I think there is also sort of demand from below rather than just purely politicians. Uh, you characterize Dr. Mohammed Mossadegh as the champion of oil nationalization. What can you tell us about his background, his political thoughts? And what made him the champion of the nationalization campaign? Well, he's very much, I would put him in the mold of national leaders like Nehru, Gandhi, um, Nkrumah, Sukarno, in that he feels that countries like Iran should be fully independent of colonial powers. In that way, he's a typical nationalist and from 1906 had been very much against foreign intervention in Iran. He had been very much against the partition of Iran between Russia and Britain in 1907. He had been against the 1919 agreement which really made Iran into a vassal state of Britain. So he had a long career of nationalism and his way of getting Iran independent was what he called it, uh, as I said, negative equilibrium. You don't give concessions to any one side, because if you give a concession to Britain, then Russia will want a concession. If you give it to Russia, uh, Britain will want a concession. Don't give it to America, because if you give it to America, also other countries will want concessions. So for him, any giving of concessions was uh, basically selling the country uh, to foreign imperialism. So in many ways, you can say he is a, one of the first forerunners of independence movements. What makes him somewhat different from the other uh, leaders of independence movements is that he is also a, a Democrat. By that, he means he, he is very much in favor of rule of law, representative government. His uh, role is in parliament. So he is, has these commitments to constitutionalism. He, in fact, was a product of the Iranian Constitutional Revolution of 1906. So he does have that uh, democratic side of it. And, of course, it's sometimes he is willing to compromise his democracy for popularism, i.e. when he is confronted by deputies who he suspects are in the pay of the CIA, he was willing to actually disband parliament and call for new elections. So uh, his opponents could say, well, he's not being democratic or constitutional. So he, he was willing to bend rules like that. But overall, you could say he, his legitimacy he saw as coming from the people and from uh, being... Uh, representing the popular will, and therefore he was always consciously, I would say, in the tradition of uh, representative government. Uh, he's in a way he's a 
combination of both nationalism and uh, constitutionalism. And this made him, I think, very attractive to progressives in the country, whether they were religious or or secular, whether they were moderate or radical, they very much sympathized with both his nationalism and constitutionalism. And he was very much in favor of freedom of press. In fact, the British government documents mentioned that at some points there were something around 500 different newspapers being published in Iran, and the British government was arguing that that's an effective way for nationalist movement to articulate its demands and reach the public. Yes, throughout his period, he was often taken to task by the press, uh, very derogatory cartoons about him. Many of these papers actually he knew were financed by the British and the Americans, uh, but he felt the press should have the right to express their views. He's also a man who is a great respecter of human life. He never executed anyone. One reason I think the coup succeeded was he was not willing to resort to force, while his opponents were more than willing to do that. For instance, after the failed coup three days before the eventual coup, when the coupists were arrested, one of his ministers suggested that they should be put on trial and executed. His response was that you're crazy. He was not going to execute yes. people, even though people had tried to uh, arrest him and depose him. And he also, I think, in the final hours of the coup, he could have asked his supporters to come out and uh, resist, and they would have done that. He was unwilling to do that because that would have caused bloodshed, and it could have caused civil war and then intervention of the major powers and the division of the country. So he always had this horror of bloodshed and eventual civil war which then undermined, actually, his political position. In fact, one of the criticisms that later was targeted at him by the Islamic Republic, uh, his main weakness was that he was a liberal. If he hadn't been a liberal and been more tough-minded, the coup wouldn't have succeeded. There is a very significant speech by Ayatollah Khamenei, who's now supreme leader, Right after the revolution, the first time there was a major demonstration to commemorate uh, Mossadegh's death. This was March 5th, uh, 1979, right after the revolution. Khamenei made this speech saying that we are not liberals like, and he didn't want to mention Mossadegh because for him it was sort of going too far to actually mention them to Mossad. But he said, Alendi, we're not liberals like Alendi that can be snuffed out easily by the CIA. We're tough guys, we're going to fight back, and if need be, we'll execute people to crush our opposition. But the fact that it was done on the date of the commemoration of Mossad there, when there was a mass demonstration of secularists, in support of Mossadegh, the clear message was that he was criticizing Mossadegh for being too soft-hearted. You write, and this is in your book, Mossadegh's long-standing position was that parties with strict structures and discipline and elaborate programs were not suited for Iran. Moreover, he saw himself 
as the spokesman for the whole country, not just for any one particular party. In October 1949, he was elected as a chairman of what was known as Jepe Meli in Farsi, or National Front in English. Tell us about this phenomenon, National Front. How did its formation come about, and what was its platform? And what can you tell us about its social base? Well, the National Front wasn't a party, so what he saw it as basically a broad alliance of organizations, uh, newspapers, um, professional groups, and political parties who were willing to work together. And the two, basically, issues that the National Front was created on was, one, actually, free elections. And by free elections, he meant a change in the electoral law so that there would be less interference in the elections by the military and by landlords. Because from 1906 onwards, there had been occasional elections, but usually they were, in a way, manipulated by intervention of the local military officers and also landlords who could shepherd their peasants to the ballot boxes. So one of his demands, long-standing demand, was to actually improve the electoral system by changing the electoral mechanisms. The other uh, clause with the formation of the National Front was, of course, then nationalization of oil. So I would say that these were two basically equally important issues for him. And in 1952-53, when it seemed like he had nationalized oil, he succeeded that, his next venture was really to improve the electoral system. And the day he fell, in fact, he had sent out instructions for a referendum uh, to actually whole-scale um, improvement of the electoral process. So his hope was that there would be more representative government in future, which would mean less uh, military influence in results and also less landlord influence in electoral results. What are the other important actors in Iran's political scene in the years leading to the military coup of 1953? Well, often people talk about the importance of figures who had supported Mossadegh and then defected, and that this defection explains the coup, so that Mossadegh alienated some of his former supporters and therefore dug his own grave. So this is an argument often used. And, of course, the main figure there is Ayatollah Kashani. His defection is often explained uh, to bring in why there was uh, actual street protests in August of 53. The problem with that argument is that if you actually look at the support Kashani and the other defectors had, it was very limited. And when they broke with Mossadegh, uh, most of their supporters actually continued to support Mossadegh. They didn't go with Kashani and the others who defected. When I was working on this uh, 30 years ago, I was convinced that these defections had uh, weakened uh, Mossadegh's position. Because after all, when you have a major 
politicians like Kashani coming out against Mossadegh, you would think that that would have undermined Mossadegh's uh, public support. Uh, but the person who actually uh, persuaded me that I was wrong uh, was a CIA analyst, uh, Richard Cottom, who had been there and had actually written a book about this period. Uh, he argued very persuasively, and later documents actually support him, that when Kashani broke with Mossad there, uh, Kashani actually uh, discredited himself and lost most of his support. And many of the clerics, even, who had supported Kashani, continued to support Mossad there. So nowadays there's a myth that, in fact, the clerical establishment supported the Shah against Mossad there. It just isn't true. Uh, many senior clerics were apolitical, refused to take sides. A few, like Kashani, opposed Mossad there. But many other clerics uh, remained very staunch supporters of Mossad there all the way actually throughout their lives. People like Talagani, Zanjani, and so on, who were prominent clerics, were also pro prominent pro Mossad there. And, and never, they never split from Mossad there. But there were some Islamist groups, such as Fedayan Islam, that played a role in the coup. The British and Americans were funneling money to these groups. And uh, the Foreign Office cryptically commented, as you mentioned in your book, when they were asking for money for some of these clerics, Foreign Office commented, apparently the wheels of Islam need more lubricating than those of the others. That's an interesting comment. There, you might have to remember, people like Behbohani, Ayatollah Behbohani, who was seeking British money, yes. they never defected from Mossad. They had always opposed Mossad. That's right. That's so right. it, they were really part of the opposition from the beginning. So you can't use them to explain that somehow Mossad have lost support. That's right. You also have an interesting citation in your book. I'd never come across that before. A British commander of the Arab Legion in Jordan conveyed General Glob, yes. Yes, uh, General Glob conveyed a message from Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt offering to use its influence to help the British in Iran. Your commentary, of course, is that politics clearly makes strange bedfellows. Very appropriate. How did this come about? Well, I think both the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and also the Fedayan Islam in Iran, they were also highly opportunistic. So they were, in public, they would be very anti-imperialist and so on. But if they felt they, their organization could gain something, they were quite willing to either work with the Shah or with the British. And, of course, Fedayna Islam's role in the nationalization crisis is a very mixed bag. It's true they assassinated Raz because he wanted to come to an agreement with the British but they also tried to assassinate Mossadegh's main right-hand man, Foreign Minister Fatemi. By some accounts, he was the architect of the uh, Iran's nationalization plan. Yes. Uh, and also, of course, Mossadegh, one of the reasons he often did his meetings at home uh, was he was afraid that Fedayeen Islam were out to assassinate him. And, of course, the op opponents said, well, this was just theoretics, uh, this was paranoia on Mossadegh's part. But I wouldn't dismiss it as pure imaginary, since they had wounded and tried to kill Khatemi, they were quite capable of trying to assassinate Mossadegh. 
and of course, part of the Fedayeen Islam. I, I'm not saying the whole Fedayeen, but part of Fedayeen Islam did participate in the coup too. That is Professor Ervan Abrahamian speaking with Shahram Aghamir about his latest book, The Coup, 1953, The CIA and the Roots of Modern U.S.-Iranian Relations. This is an encore edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. briefly that ever since the 1979 revolution in Iran, the current regime has had an uneasy relationship with Mossadegh. It glorifies Ayatollah Kashani and it condemns the 1953 coup that brought the Shah back to power. But there is no mention of how Kashani embraced the coup. They have decided to write a new narrative. Yeah, Kashani followers have this explanation, which is hard to buy, but this is what they claim. They claimed that Kashani was the real head of the oil nationalization movement, that Mossadegh was secondary to it, so that basically the whole nationalist movement was led by Kashani. And therefore, when there was a split between Kashani and Mossadegh, it was really Mossadegh who split. And once he split, Kashani sent a letter warning Mossadegh that the British and the Americans were going to organize a coup against him and that Mossadegh should see the light and come back and give support to Kashani. There is such a letter, but it was probably post-dated after the coup, so it's probably a later forgery. But this is sort of the narrative the Kashani supporters give, that they blow up the role of Kashani and argue that if Mossadegh had taken Kashani's advice and remained faithful to Kashani, the coup would not have occurred. Officially, they keep, the government keeps uh, silent on that, but right. you find Kashani's grandson and relatives peddle this argument. Professor Abrahamian, we mentioned the, the oil workers and the general strike of 1951. On April 25th, a day after the general strike ended, Mossadegh submitted to the Majlis, the Iranian parliament, a detailed nationalization bill. Meanwhile, the Majlis offered him the premiership. Both the Majlis and the Upper House Senate approved the bill, and the Shah put his signature on the nationalization law on May 1st. How did this come about? The parliament in general, the legislative branch, was clearly not stacked in favor of Mossadegh, was it? No, I mean, the National Front just had a handful of members. Here you can see the actual influence of public influence. This was a national issue, and much of the country was very much in favor of nationalization. So it was like, you know, calling for national independence. No politician in their right senses is going to oppose national independence. So even the ones, deputies who were pro-British 
and historically had been always identified with the British, they basically went along with it because it would have been political suicide for them to come out against nationalization. So it was very much influence of public pressure, not just in the streets, but, you know, in professional groups, students, and also in the press. You find in that time there's a very lively press, and every newspaper was, in fact, in favor of nationalization. So the whole national mood was united in this. And you can see a verification of this. George McGee, the American Assistant Secretary of State, who throughout this crisis was the main American official dealing with the Iranian oil crisis, he rushed off to Tehran from the United States in order to prevent the nationalization bill being passed. He thought he could get the Shah not to sign the bill because, of, after all, the law eventually has to get the Shah's signature. And once McGee got to Tehran, he discovered that the mood was such that there was no way he could talk the Shah into not signing. He had to sign. So from then on, the McGee's role was that, well, the best thing was to accept the principle of nationalization, but try to get a settlement where nationalization would not actually be implemented. And that brings us back to the point that at the beginning of our discussion here, when you talk about George McKee rushing to Tehran to advise Britain to make quote-unquote generous offers to avoid nationalization, he actually admits in his memoirs, as you, you cited in your book, both we and the British very much wanted to avoid the nationalization of the AIOC concession. And this is referring to Anglo-Iranian oil company. He goes on to say this would be bad for AIOC and Iran. It would jeopardize concessions held by the U.S., U.K., and other firms around the world. This was the bottom line. I mean, for America, nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company wasn't just the problem for uh, Britain, because if nationalization succeeded, it would be a bad example. It, it would have a domino effect that other oil countries, and not even oil countries, uh, other countries with important resources would get the insidious idea that they should have control over their own resources. So from the very beginning, the British and the Americans really had a common interest in making sure that nationalization was not a success. In Iran, this was often not realized because Americans had uh, criticized the Anglo-Iranian oil company. The American ambassador uh, was a, quite a vociferous critic of AIOC, and people therefore took this to mean that there was major rivalries between Britain and the United States, and therefore Iran could use United States against Britain. This was a complete misunderstanding of the situation. The differences between U.S. and Britain wasn't over nationalization. Both of them were adamant against nationalization. The difference was that America felt that the AIOC had been too greedy not offering Iran 50-50 agreement, and that if uh, Britain had offered the 50-50 agreement, this mess would never have started, mm -hmm. and therefore they blamed the oil company for this. 
But when it came to the question of nationalization, they were just as adamantly opposed to it as uh, Britain was. Unsurprisingly, the U.S. oil companies displayed their class solidarity with Anglo-Iranian oil company, the British company that had oil concessions in Iran. A U.S. company representative argued it would be better to lose Iran behind Iron Curtain than to have Mossadegh succeed. And that captures the sentiments of these oil companies. Yes, I mean, all through the you know, 28 months of negotiations, McGee was often in touch with the American oil companies, assuring them that U.S. was not going to accept nationalization. He didn't really have to assure them because actually the U.S. State Department was just as opposed to nationalization as the oil companies were. But in his dealings with the oil companies, he's always telling them there's no way that U.S. and Britain are going to accept nationalization, a real nationalization. And in, in an expression of class solidarity, these major companies reassured AIOC, Anglo-Iranian oil company, that they would not buy a drop of oil from Iran as long as the crisis lasted. This is yeah. the crisis following Iran taking over the installations. I, the book isn't about the influence of American oil companies, but I think what comes out inadvertently is the amount of influence private companies like the oil companies did have over U.S. foreign policy. If you go back early in the period, in 1944, this is in the, still in the midst of World War II, when the Soviet Union was bearing the main burden of the deaths uh, in the Eastern Front. What did the oil companies do? They come to Iran, and uh, both American and British companies come to Iran looking for new oil concessions, even in northern Iran on the uh, border of the Soviet Union. Now, the State Department, interestingly enough, said this was a bad idea, because if you do that, you're going to antagonize the Soviet Union. You don't want to do that in the midst of World War II, where it's life and death struggle still with the Nazis. But... Eventually, Washington supports the oil companies uh, making bids in Iran to get new concessions. And, of course, once the Soviets heard about this, then the Soviets said, if you're going to demand oil concessions in Iran, then we have a right to have an oil concession in <laughs> northern Iran. And this started, in many ways, the rivalry between U.S. and the Soviet Union even before the Cold War started. And it started all over because of oil. And Kennan, in fact, who was the, is still in Moscow, a diplomat in Moscow, his analysis was that the whole thing, this uh, crisis of 44-45, was triggered off by the American companies uh, looking for concessions. He blamed the oil companies for this uh, crisis. So the nationalization bill is approved. The Shah puts his signature on it on May 1st. And as the new prime minister, Mr. Mossadegh, gave a May Day radio speech to the nation. What measures did the Anglo-Iranian oil company and the, the labor government in Britain take in response to the oil nationalization in Iran? Well, the initial reaction was that Mossadegh is not going to last long because prime ministers don't last long. So... They were waiting for him, for uh, the match less, to depose him. Then when that didn't happen, then there was talk about actual invasion of southern Iran to take hold of the oil 
regions. That was then eventually vetoed for a number of reasons. One often reason given is because U.S. didn't support that. But the reasons are actually much more complicated. And I don't think the U.S. veto really had that much impact on the British. More important was the worry that if Britain invaded Iran, that would uh, permit the Soviet Union to invade northern Iran because of the 1921 agreement the Soviets had with Iran that if any other country invaded Iran, the Soviets would have a right to actually occupy northern Iran. So that was a major deterrent. Another deterrent was the British realized that getting hold of the refinery wouldn't be much good. You would have to actually get all the oil wells in control. And to do that, you needed a large army, a few battalions. Marines from Iraq were not going to do it. So you you needed a large occupying force. And Lord Mountbatten, who had been the viceroy of India before independence, he argued that Britain really couldn't occupy southern Iran because uh, the Indian army no longer existed. Before you look back, previous half century, whenever Britain invaded a country in the Middle East, it invaded it with the Indian army. So there was no longer Indian army. The British really didn't have the manpower to occupy the whole area of Khuzestan. Another problem would have been, of course, even if they did occupy it, how are you going to get the labor force to cooperate? There would be another general strike, sabotage, and so on. So for all these reasons, the British uh, didn't really implement the invasion plan. But American historians like to credit the American veto as what prevented the British from invading. And fast forward uh, to July 16, 1952. Dr. Mossadegh stood down as the prime minister. What prompted his resignation and what happened after he resigned? Well, before Britain and United States really came to the conclusion to carry out a coup, they were both working to get rid of Mossadegh through constitutional means, i.e. to muster enough deputies in the majlis to vote him out of office and bring in Ravam, who had promised both the British and the Americans that he would come to a settlement. So in July of 52, in fact, there was enough deputies uh, mustered to bring Ravam to power. Mossadegh basically pulled a fast one on the Shah. He demanded that he should have control over the military, something the Shah was very possessive about. So this brought a constitutional crisis between Mossadegh and the Shah over who controls the military, civilians or the Shah. And this then resulted in major protests in favor of Mossadegh, and Ravom was forced to resign. So once Ravom was pushed out, Mossadegh came back with much more power because he now was nominally actually could appoint the chief of staff for the military. So what this meant was that the British and the American route for solving the problem of Mossad there failed in July because Gabon was not able to survive. And from then on, 
both Britain and United States were thinking much more in terms of military coup rather than a political coup to get rid of Mossadegh. Now, some people argue, well, the U.S. really didn't commit itself to a military coup till Eisenhower came in, and the Truman administration was not in favor of a coup. But my reading of it was that the Americans really had no other alternative once the Ravon solution was not on the table. The U.S. already was before Eisenhower came in. U.S. was already thinking of a military coup solution. So those sympathetic with Dr. Mossadegh, they referred to coup as an event that removed a democratically elected prime minister. But when you look at the July 21st uprising, Mossadegh's power really was a popular power. It came ostensibly from street politics and civil society activism. It didn't come from the ballot box because, as you, you mentioned earlier in our discussion, the election system in Iran was flawed. The results did not represent the popular discourse. Right. And this popular street support, I mean, lasted uh, not just on July 52. It continued like on the anniversary of first anniversary in 53 July. You had huge mass demonstrations in support of Mossadegh. So that support remained constant. And if Mossadegh had wanted to, I think he could have called on that support to come out on the streets, even on uh, on Mr. Hashem Ordad. The 1953 coup was named Operation Ajax, had two components, turmoil to destabilize the government and a conventional military coup to topple the government. In summary, what were the measures used to uh, prepare for this coup? Well, part of the destabilization, I mean, it had many components. One was, of course, economic. Uh, which the British had done already a year before, uh, the Americans uh, actually added to this by saying that they would cut off aid. There was some little aid going to Iran, and this was uh, seen as a, sim- a sort of psychological thing, saying, well, U.S. was not going to get any more, give more aid. Another part of the component was that the press and the governments would say, well, Mossad there is paving the path for a communist takeover, that the communists are preparing for a coup, and that if we don't step in, basically the country's on the verge of communism. So if you look at any of the newspapers in Britain or America in early 53, all the way to the coup, they're basically uh, highlighting the so-called communist danger and even actually uh, exaggerating the size of two-day demonstrations to get to the public in the West the idea that really this is a country about to become communist. Then other aspects of the coup was to try to, of course, woo away Mossadegh, former Mossadegh supporters. So Kashani, I mentioned, there was a very systematic policy to attract him away. So you get long, actually, interviews between Henderson and Kashani. Uh, we don't know what they were said there because those transcripts are still kept secret. And this is uh, Loy Henderson, uh, yes, the U.S. Lloyd ambassador Henderson. in Iran. And you, you can get some flavor of it because you get also a lot of string of American journalists appear in Tehran, always give flattering interviews to Kashani. 
they basically flatter him with saying that you're not just a great leader of Iran, you're a great leader of the whole Islamic world. You even representing the downtrodden people of Ireland and so on. So this actually, I'm sure, boosted up Karshani's ego and made him much more susceptible to thinking that um, his future lay in undermining uh, Mossad there. Then there were other, actually, projects of undermining. Uh, one was to actually print a lot of uh, forged uh, Iranian banknotes, flood the place in order to undermine the economy. Now, we can't tell from the published declassified documents whether that was implemented or not, but it was part of their actually scheme to undermine the economy. You can say dirty politics of uh, manipulating even finances of the country. Another part of it was to get articles that were written by the CIA, MI5, actually published in Iranian newspapers uh, denouncing Mossadegh. So one famous one denounced Fatemi as being actually a heretic convert to Baha'ism, Christianity, and so on, all of which, of course, was highly dangerous when you're dealing with uh, Fidai and Islam fanatics. So in a way, this was an incitement to assassinations. So this was all you can say the, in a way of preparation for the coup. Then the actual coup itself had two components. One, what they called the quasi-legal component, which was that uh, the Shah would sign a decree dismissing Mossadegh as a prime minister, and another decree appointing Zahedi as prime minister. And they called this uh, quasi-legal because on the, the, by their reading of the Constitution, which wasn't accurate reading, but their reading of the Constitution was that the Shah had the authority to appoint and dismiss prime ministers. That wasn't actually the, the true meaning of the Constitution, but that's what the royalists and the CIA decided they would use that. And once that failed, of course, the abortive coup was that the colonel from the Imperial Guard came to arrest Mossadegh with this decree of the Shah dismissing Mossadegh. Uh, Mossadegh, of course, said this can't be a true document. It's a forgery because the Shah doesn't have the authority to do this. And Mossadegh instead had the colonel arrested. So that part of the coup failed. But then the other part of the coup, the real part of the coup, the military side of the coup was to get the tanks that were in five different barracks around Tehran into the city and to occupy the strategic points in the city, including uh, Mossadegh's home. And that part of the project was, in fact, then implemented on the actual coup. So what failed originally was not the coup itself. It was just the semi-legal aspect of the coup. The real coup and that machinery was left intact after the colonel in the Imperial Guard was arrested. You start your final chapter by this sentence from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the evil that men do lives after them. 
And your chapter is titled The Legacy. And what is the legacy of 1953 coup inside Iran and at the international level? Well, the coup basically foreclosed any possibility of uh, liberalism, secularism, socialism in Iran. And that paved the way for the emergence of religious movement, what generally known as fundamentalism. So what we have now is a, a clerical republic is in a way a unforeseen consequence of the coup. Ervan Abrahamian is a distinguished professor of Iranian and Middle Eastern history and politics at City University of New York. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir. You have been listening to an encore edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Come on, they're all coming down.